Hello everyone, welcome to Mouth Off. This is the official podcast of heyyouguys.co.uk. We've been away for quite a while, but now we're back and we have a slightly changed format. Brandon Conley from Bleeding Cool and I are going to be talking about Christopher Nolan's new film, Inception. Now, uh, we're going to give our thoughts on the film, uh, but also we're going to turn our eye to uh, kind of the critical cavalcade that has uh, subsequently followed it because um, it's uh, garnered many, many good reviews and there's only a, a few pockets of resistance um, against the Nolan machine. And I think it would be interesting just to kind of see exactly why this film has garnered the response that it has. Is it justified? But also um, what what we think about the film and what its place uh, in the you know the summer blockbusters of 2010 is. So um, before we get any further, our, our other uh, usual um, podcast co-host Craig Skinner is currently in Montreal at the moment. I think if I've timed this rightly, he is now having dinner with Ken Russell um, as part of his uh, as part of his itinerary over there. He was um, flown over there to Fantasia where I think he saw The Devils last night and I think there's a few other very interesting films. Uh, it's the kind of thing that's right up Craig Street so um, when we do this podcast next week he'll be reporting back a little bit of, uh, of what he saw there. So okay, Brendan Connolly from Bleeding Call. Hello sir. Christopher Nolan's Inception. This film um, has been given many many names before it was even out it was supposedly the the savior of the summer blockbuster it was supposed to be the film that brought intelligence back into the multiplexes and uh, and it did very very well at the box office it did you know pretty pretty fantastically and like i said there has been an enormous tidal wave of praise um first of all tell me a bit about what you think of christopher nolan and also uh, then what you think of inception Oh, we're starting here, are we? Um, yeah. I've never really been a fan of Nolan's, I've got to say. I think Memento was the film that made his reputation, right? I think that's a, a reasonable assumption. His his previous uh, film following um, it had a cult following. Um, I don't like that sentence. It's got the word following in it too many times. <laughs> Uh, but then Memento came out. People were kind of blown away by what they perceived as a narr- you know, an act of narrative audacity in that the film was structured in reverse order. Now, I had a number of problems with Memento, and the majority of them did actually revolve around this, this structural conceit. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, I let it slide, and I thought I'd see what would happen next. And, and that's when his remake of um, uh, Insomnia came out, which I thought was a bit of a clunker, really, to be honest. Really, quite quite a poor film. Some incredibly bad editing in places. Um, quite a misjudged sort of sense of pace. Quite a dull film. I have to say, how can you get you know Al Pacino and Robin Williams, you know, with the characters that they had? Because I only saw this the day before I was going to see Inception because I'd, I'd seen you know Memento and I'd seen the Batman films, but I'd not seen Insomnia. And people were recommending it to me. They were saying you have to go and see it. It's this wonderful um, film noir. Uh, in the, in the daylight, you know, they were making a big deal of all that, and I have to say that I was kind of bored. Um, uh, there were only a few scenes oh, in it where yeah, I thought, it's pretty dull. but it's and, and and it was a real shame because you had Christopher Nolan, and he was you know on a bit of a high after the films that he had, and he got these two amazing talents and didn't do an awful lot with it. But that didn't seem to hamper him in any way because people seemed to be, you know, maybe he was riding the momentum wave, and you know, people were saying, "Oh, what's he going to do next?" And then, of course, we come into to the Batman films. What do you we think? We do indeed, yeah. I mean, you know, there was memento, momentum enough to carry him to Batman's beginnings. <laughs> and uh, Batman Begins, I think, is quite a shockingly turgid film. And I do think it's just full of the most ludicrous logic gaps. For example, um, uh, Bruce Wayne wants people to go away from his party. 
he walks around and tries to insult them all one by one instead of, for example, uh, telling them that the party's over or shouting fire or setting off the fire alarm or any of these really easy things that most people would think. Um, and there's all these sort of scenes that are, you know, cool ideas like that but don't really add up. Um, I don't quite understand Christian Bell's performance either, and, and I, I do think that Nolan should have said something to him. But that ludicrous <laughs> voice he's putting on, I don't, I don't get it at all. And I, I, I'm really not a fan. I'm really not a fan. And I think the third act twist when, oh, he's not dead, he's alive, because he's him and he's not him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, flat. But... flat. And everybody credited it for being a sort of a dark Batman. I'm not sure what that means. I mean, if you want Batman to be darker, right... Just like put a pair of shades on. I don't understand what people mean by dark. It's this term that we're you know, like dark. Like, you, you know what know, they mean, though, Brendan. They mean realistic. They and and, and that's no, that's. Well, a, I think that that's what a lot of people thought that, um, especially with something like Batman, where you had this sort of history of being very pantomime, and you kind of bring it up to this more, uh, you know, sort of in 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 you know, sort of quotation marks, um, realistic. Uh, tone realistic setting i think it's about uh, and this is actually a problem that i had with inception um and some of other uh, some of chris Nolan's other films is that there is this you know complete uh, vacuum of humor there's 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 nothing to it there's no sense of of enjoying it and i think in in, in some senses you you know tim burton did a lot with that with with his version of batman in the sense that there was this you know relatively um you know dark notion of of vengeance out there of of being caught between two worlds and and i think that that much hay was made of it but realism though i mean realism if he's trying to make this film real why is it a guy with like a rubber suit with pointy ears on it what's realistic about that conceit i don't understand but that's that's i also don't understand you know why he would then also have like you know batarangy things and a funny car that uh, you know, design presets behind the car are obviously driven by what looks cool rather than what is functional. But I suppose that's Batman all over, isn't it? And this whole notion of of it being of it being yes, dark. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I totally understand. And I'm, and I'm just trying to think of um, people seem to consider that kind of a rebirth of of, of the superheroes. And I'm, I, I don't know when uh, Superman Returns came out. Obviously, was it around the same time, or was it? I think it was after Batman. Returns was Returns was newer. Yeah, Returns was the newer film. But you can you can sort of see how. How they um, how they kind of fit together if if they do fit together because you have these these two um, new packagings of, of these you know iconic characters uh, Superman Returns didn't do very well even though I think I prefer it to to Batman Begins um, and yet Batman Begins is the one that had all the hype and it's the one that then begat the Dark Knight which of course was um, uh, two years ago wasn't it where people were just falling over themselves yeah uh, to, yeah and, and was was a very important um, a very important moment in recent film history despite being an absolutely dreadful film but you're kind of i think you're one of the few people the few dissenting voices there um i uh, from my own point of view i i watched the dark knight again before i saw inception in uh, about a week before and i I actually fell asleep which i never do um it was just towards the um it was just when they had the you know the joker in um in the prison cell and i just couldn't keep my eyes open and I thought this 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 is not right this 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 is not the film that that kind of should you know should be doing this this to me I know that it's um it's it's quite a hard film I think to uh to go through I think it's a film that you kind of endure but people are saying it's an improvement on Batman Begins it's one of the most important uh films you know throughout but but why what's what's their what's their argument I mean people people keep 
ladling on these sort of terms that, again, don't mean anything. But it's great. It's a dark Batman. It's a gritty Batman. It's the Batman we always wanted. None of those are actually qualitative assessments at all. They're preferential statements and subjective and, and frankly, meaningless. It's just not a well-made film. People always say films are well-made. And I hate to say this, John, but I'm going to come out and say 99.9% of people who've ever said that a film is well-made don't understand 1% of what that concept means. Okay, but let, let's, let's drill into this very, very quickly. What do you think they mean by that? They are just justifying their love for it. Now, let's think about this for a second, right? Most people don't look for evidence that disputes what they believe. They look for evidence that supports what they believe. Sure, yeah. So if you go into the Dark Knight looking for reasons to like it, okay, yeah, mm. you know you can come out with impunity and praise some of those performances, even though, frankly, some of them are far from spectacular. I think Gary Oldman wins the film, okay? I think his performance is great. I think uh, Eckhart is normally better, but he's fine. I think Miss Gyllenhaal is normally better, but she's fine. I think Mr. Ledger had been much better, but he does something unexpected, and therefore people are gratified by, if nothing else, the novelty of the mm-hmm. piece. It's also a very showy performance by him, and that's always something that attracts attention. Mm-hmm. So it's very easy to consolidate your, your positive point of view by talking about the performances. You can consolidate your 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 point of view on how epic it is or quote immersive because other people have applied these these uh, adjectives to discussing its large format IMAX cinematography yep. or whatever yep. without ever actually understanding uh, what what the effect is of that format change on an audience and it's profoundly distressing on an audience's experience but these are people who uh Disregard that, and they wish it. They wish it away. They are literally looking for for to put ticks in the pros column, and they would never dream of putting one in the cons column. These people have made their mind up before they go in. And the argument might be that I went in looking to just fill up the cons column and not tick in the pros column. It's very hard for me to refute that argument. I can't take you back to where I was when I was on the way in. But I was cynical because I've seen the trailer, I've seen clips, I've seen Nolan's previous films, I've heard him talk about things. Yeah. Even this week, I'm hearing his cinematographer, Wally Fister, say stuff that just isn't true. It's just not, it's not that it's a matter of opinion, John. It just mm. isn't a fact, okay? And they're stating them like facts. They're just wrong about some elements of how cinema works. But because people don't understand, you always have to go back to grassroots. Now, I'll tell you something, okay? Mm. Now, People I know who actually have been put through the ringer and have actually made films as craftspeople, okay, mm-hmm. you can find it very easy to criticise elements of craft in that film that they've worked on. No, but they're just go on looking for the pros in all the other columns and ticking them. It's, it's confirmation bias. People are looking to support this supposition, this sort of zeitgeisty supposition that this film is something special. But I tell you, you sit down with me from start to finish that film and I will pick at least three holes in every shot. Okay, well, that's what we should do. We should record a, a commentary track for, for, for Batman Begins and The Dark Knight Returns just so people can see it. You, I tell you what, you send me copies because I'm never going to pay a penny for them. <laughs> Fair enough, we'll do that. Well, the thing is, I mean, that's um, that's your opinion and I'm sure that, that, that you can back it up with it. But for some reason, people... Um, 
really, really enjoyed the Dark Knight. They really, really enjoyed Batman Begins, and that's the point that, that I think they would make. In 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 the absence of someone here who was a complete Nolan fan, I'm going to sort of play devil's advocate a little bit, and I'm going to say that the films are very enjoyable. They're um, they're very grand in 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 scale. Um, they uh, they hold together um, from a. A leads to B leads to C. Um, you know the, the so, but, they, but they don't. They don't. For people not paying. For people not paying attention. No, no, no. I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to. No, no, no. I was going to say people are not paying attention, but for people who are just um, not perhaps engaging um, as as deeply as someone who would look for it on on, on like a level of. Okay, um, so for a passive viewer, the film does revolve uh, at a constant speed until it's finished. That that far. In, yeah, and I would say in an enjoyable fashion. And this again is me playing devil's advocate. But what does I, that mean? It means that and, you can go into anybody's going to enjoy any. I mean. Somebody is going to enjoy any film, and they're right to, and it's up to them. And if they enjoy it, then wicked, that's great. Films are great, and they're enjoyable. Mm. And there will be millions of people who enjoy The Dark Knight, and they're not stupid for enjoying it. Exactly. But that's them. It's inside them. So okay, so maybe there's something in those films that Christopher Nolan brings out. And again, this is this is this is me trying to work out, you know, their sort of mind, um, the way the way that their mind works. Because I mean, The Dark Knight had such a uh, a momentum about it and and it was proved you know through you know various different oscars i think didn't he let win an oscar and of course you know for, for his for his performance there and i think that by by certain measures in terms of box office and in terms of awards the dark knight made um you know the 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 christopher nolan um filmography even even grander because it sort of cemented some sort of like concept of him as a genius didn't but, it? but but in some ways and brendan you're pretty you know know no more about this than us because you were you were doing this and i don't think hey you guys was was around when the dark knight um was uh, was out there was an expectation that it would do really well and i think there was an expectation that it was something special that it would build on on everything that people liked about Batman Begins. And I think that in some ways people were expecting Inception to to trump that. And I think that's kind of what a lot of people went into. Well, with. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think what we're dealing with is a series of escalating expectations mm. married to um, a, a massive drive towards confirmation bias. Yeah, fair enough. But I mean, um, with, with Inception, which, which came out a couple of weeks ago, or was it last week? I can't quite remember, but it, it was certainly out very recently. Um, people literally were falling over each other to to prove how much they loved it. There was a bizarre Twitter wars between people who would say, "You know, don't don't read their five star review, read my five star review," and things like that, because people seem to. You didn't to... understand it. I understood it. Mm, exactly, but that in that's something else that I can't. You know, that I can't stand about all of this is people saying that they have the right way of understanding it, but you know we we can get onto that. Um, but as we as we launch into into Inception, um, Brendan, you have a few, uh, I believe a, a few problems with uh, with with the film, which you're going to pepper into this podcast. Aren't we spread them out. We spread them out. We're I was them laying out. in bed the other night, John, and I, I just sent you a text message, didn't you I? Did, and I yeah. said. I can't stop thinking of more flaws with the film. Right. And, and these are just sort of like logical flaws because, you know, uh, logic is the only, is the only truth, man. It's the only answer piece. Uh, <laughs> and these are like logical flaws in the movie and they were sort of literally piling up. And you said, well, you'll have to tell me some. And I said, okay, I'll give you 10 of them. Yeah. yeah. What we're going to do is we sprinkle, I don't know, 10 or whatever as we talk tonight. Right. We will. Um, and we'll start with one of them. Let's choose, um, and I want to save two for, for, for the very end okay. because 
because they answer any criticisms you've got of the other ones. If you understand what I mean, that's good. Um, okay, the first one. What's all this stuff about mazes, right? Maze, maze. We're going to make a maze. Make a maze. Can you draw me a maze in one minute? It'll take me two minutes to solve. <laughs> okay, all this maze stuff, and then at some point, oh yeah, yeah, we're not going to do the mazes thing. <laughs> Yeah, there was that, and, and I have to say that if um, uh, if you are coming into this podcast without seeing Inception, then probably stop listening now because it won't make an awful lot of sense to you. But, yeah, um, but we are going to spoil it in every will. sense. Yeah, yeah, we really will. Coming back to that point you said about mazes, it's interesting that um, that the notion of mazes and labyrinths were were mentioned, obviously in the film, but also um, by Christopher Nolan himself at the press conference. He was talking about um, the fact that. Even even the advertising pertained to mazes, didn't it? That that was what it was all about. There were viral games that had. There were know, viral were, games that were yeah. hit on mazes. Exactly, yeah. So in, in some senses, it's it's um, you can go back to, to to mythology and think of the Minotaur uh, in the maze, and you can think about um, the mind being a kind of maze. And does that mean that um, Marianne Cotillard's character was the Minotaur in the cave? That Leonardo DiCaprio's character does was. Does it a, mean that? Does it mean that? That's like saying, right? Oh, the marketing around this film was uh, was based very much on New York. Mm. Uh, so, uh, so was uh, Marion Cotillard's uh, character in this film, Rudy Giuliani. I mean, it just doesn't it doesn't follow. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, no, no. But but this is what I'm saying because Christopher Nolan was 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 very um, keen to talk about his influences um, within this, and one of them was um, uh, the Borges uh, book Labyrinths, and also um, I think he was just talking about his um, and, and Escher as well, which of course he you had these representations of uh, various different well, famous also, Escher works. You know, there's a character called Ariadne who... Exactly, yeah, yeah. In the, in the, in the Cretan... It's world. not it's, it's not subtle, but the thing is that, that those are the kind of things that Christopher Nolan was kind of peppering. And when I saw it, some of the big IMAX shots that they had in there were, um, you know, vast cityscapes and, and you, could, um, you could overlay the notion of, of, of them being a maze. We've established that already. There's a few inconsistencies. There's a, there's a few things which which don't pay off in the end. But Brendan, let me uh, let me turn it around to you. Say, so what did you enjoy about uh, the the film Inception? Oh, clever. Um, <laughs> the things that I enjoyed most were the stuff to do with the father son relationship. In the sense that I didn't know anything about that going in, mm. so um, uh, they felt like plot twists in a sense. That's what the the point of Inception is going to be. It's going to involve this relationship. Um, and it, it was a pretty typical turnaround with the way disappointed, in quotes, the word disappointed didn't form the part of a sentence that we were expecting it to, you know, and it did, it meant something else. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty standard turnaround, but it was one of the things that wasn't, uh, I wasn't expecting. And I do think that, that that added something. And I do think that that character and his relationship with his, his dad was one of the more sort of deftly sketched small parts of the film. Mm. It was weird because I, uh, like you, I didn't know about that. I knew that it was, it was Killian Murphy's um, character who they were going to, uh, whose sort of mind that they were going to enter, if you like, but I didn't know why. I didn't know what, what the point of it was. Right. I mean, actually when, when you, when you look at the, uh, the fact that of, of the way the heist is kind of set up and um, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, it's his, you know, one last job, to to get home, do you know what I mean? Like he's and then he's then, then he's done with it. It's it's you know it's, it's so obvious. And when when they said it, I, you know, in the film, I was thinking, really, okay, that's a bit of a that's a bit of an obvious setup for it. But you know, fine, we'll kind of see where it goes. Um, it only got interesting when when Killian Murphy and Pete Pothelsway, who plays his dad, uh, kind of turned up because um, unlike the Leonardo DiCaprio and the Michael Caine 
sort of uh, father-in-law and you know son-in-law um relationship came to the end of the four uh for a very very brief moment i was thinking that's everything you're saying and, and all the relationships in play here like he was the person who taught him and you know he still sort of teaches um you know uh, students and I thought that, that 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 was quite dull. I thought that that was fine and, you know, fine for sort of building blocks, but it didn't inspire anything in me. And it was only when um, Killy Murphy and, and and his dad, they had that thing with the whole Tom Berenger character who plays his sort of uh, godfather. Um, yeah, I, it was I, just a little more, un- it was just a little less of a cliche, wasn't it? It was well, it a little was, more unusual. It was almost as if that, that there was a much more interesting movie going on over there and they decided to bring in this kind of dream heist, um, you know, Gang of uh, gang of um, you know criminals. A, a in relatively it. wrote sort of action film instead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, 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 it, and it's not the fact that I think that it was hyped up, and I think that there's far more potential to to the notion of um, you know sort of going inside people's dreams, which actually I, I I do think that there is far more potential. But that that doesn't matter. This is not what Christopher Nolan was trying to say. I think that you've got um, a fairly standard heist movie. And I think you've got your you've got your hook, which is that they can go into people's dreams, and then they keep adding different layers, they keep adding tension, and they keep doing you know um, changing the rules ever so slightly, uh, and, and and it's good. But I, I was thinking throughout it because I I'd, I'd not read any reviews, but I'd heard some people's reactions to it. I was thinking, am I missing something? Am am I wrong in not absolutely falling over myself for it? Um, and I can't quite work out. Um, having read some reviews, why, why people love it so much. I think, you know, it, it engaged me throughout the whole time. Um, and there were certain bits in it that I thought, and you know, were, 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 were very nicely handled. I thought that the, um, that the emotion of, uh, of the film, uh, centers on Leonardo DiCaprio and, and, and his son and his daughter and his, uh, and his wife. I thought that there were some ideas in there that were just really, really well, 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 well handled, particularly the notion of he and, um, Marianne Cotillard's character going deeper and deeper and and living out you know an entire life and then snapping back into the real world having lived 50 years and growing old together I thought that that idea was you know was a really really nice one I thought that that played up really well but it had to you had to dig you had to find them do you know what I mean you had to sort of look far 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 beyond the kind of more uh regular heist movie um you know uh setup which which I think was um uh, which I think was overlooked by a lot of people. But um, let's have another one of your of your things you didn't like about Inception. All right, well, we've already mentioned uh, the name Ariadne, and the film is prone to giving characters meaningful names, right? Yeah. So the character Eames is named after Ray and Charles Eames, who'd made Powers of Ten, which uh, a short film that, had it never been a rip from the crypt, than it is now. <laughs> um, wonderful short film, Powers of Ten. Please embed it below this podcast. I will it's do. On YouTube. Um, and they were designers. They designed chairs. They made films about toy trains, all sorts of interesting things. Um, but where this gets really silly, and it is always kind of silly when you do this, you know, it's kind of like these bits in the horror, like these sort of cheap horror movies where it's like, Inspector Cronenberg, let's go down and see what, you know... <laughs> Mr. Hitchcock is doing. PC Craven's up to. Do you know what I mean? It's like, what? (laughs) Jesus. Um, uh, So it's a bit like that. It's a sort of a, it's a really sort of snooty version of that in a way, really. (laughs) Um, But calling one of the characters Mal is both spectacularly stupid and sort of tinged with racism, I feel. And it's like, you know, well, it just means bad. Yeah. In French, right? Yeah. So what's the idea that we don't know this, that this is some obtuse reference? Because if we do know this, it's like, hang on, someone called their kid 
bad. It's like when they named the spaceship in Sunshine and let's call it Icarus 2 and then try and fly to the sun. <laughs> yeah, it's not very subtle, is it? You don't need to read Freakonomics to understand that that's a bad idea, giving someone that name, right? Um, I mean, honestly, man, yes. What are you going to call your child? Uh, pox. Do you know what I mean? I mean Christ's sake! Um, and, of course, there's these people out there who are shouting their excuse for it at the podcast right now. Stay tuned. I'm getting on to your big load of it's all the dream baloney later on. Fine, fair enough. Okay, because, of course, that is another one of these, um, you know, uh, unanswered questions, which, of course... Um, I'll answer it. Well, that, well, that's that's excellent because there's a lot of people and there's been a lot of talk about it, particularly the very final scene. But we'll we'll get onto that in uh, in just a second. Let's talk a bit about um, uh, the actors and uh, and you know who do you, who, who did you enjoy and who did you think could have done better? Because I, I, I love Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy, for me, steals the show. Um, even though he's not he's not given a particularly complex character to play, but I think every single second that he is on screen, it's just electric. And I, you know, I'm a huge, huge fan of his. Um, Posh boy with muscles, yeah. Combination. Well, yeah, but also he's, Stephen Fry thinks he's fantastic. Well, well, that's fine. I mean, I, I can't share Stephen Fry's you know complete view on him. I'm sure, but I. Um, uh, he's just a you know really really interesting actor in the sense that he uh, he can always bring something a little different to it and I think that you know he I think his character Eames was um, was one of the most interesting in there. I also really liked Marianne Cotillard's character. I thought um, not that she was given an awful lot to do, but she is uh, she's like a one of the old style screen sirens. You know what I mean? She is one of the people that she's uh, worth looking at. Yeah, she's, but not only that, she has this. She has this. No, but I mean, like visually, there's something. Yeah, no, no yeah, yeah, that, that's it, exactly. And she, she has this. Uh, this is like a real magnetic quality to her. She's one of those actresses that you just know that there's there's so much going on underneath. Um, whereas you have so many, you know, and I'm thinking of like rom coms that get advertised on the sides of sides of buses. You have, you know, these fairly plastic, generic faces that sort of beam and gawp, and you know, there's absolutely nothing going on behind it other than what's the next line? Where am I supposed to move to? What's my, mark, you know, what's my mark here? There's, um, you always get the feeling that that, that she is really, really going. Well, for I, I'd compare her to to Joe Gordon Levitt in that sense, actually. I think they've just got movie star faces in a way, in that that mm. you sort of fall into them. That's that's very true, and I think that um, he was another uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt was um, again just uh, another another shining example. The thing is, for me, you had Leonardo DiCaprio doing his doing his bit, and it was and 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 it was fine. It wasn't. It, it didn't kind of blow me away, but it, I thought that he was you know fairly competent. I just wish that his character was was drawn a little more sketchily, if that makes sense. Everything seemed very, very defined. He always seemed very, very sure of um, of, of kind of who he was and, and, and where he was moving towards. Um, he's not that phased by any of the, 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 the changes that go on, you know, within the narrative. And he's not, um, you don't get the sense that he really discovers at the end of it all exactly where it went wrong and why it went wrong. It's almost as if the... Well, the, we, need to, we need to come back to this. This yeah. is something. When we get to dealing with the end, we'll deal with the end. Sure, but, sure. But, um, um, you know, in terms of who did I enjoy on the cast, mm. I like watching Joe. I think he's nice to watch. I mm. think there's something... I think he gives you his all. I think his character was practically non-existent. Mm. Again, Marion, uh, non-existent. Heck, I like most of them. I mean, it really, the only ones that sort of I have real trouble with 
or regularly have trouble with are, are Leo and, and Killian. And Killian sometimes I, I, I can kind of... I think he's just... You need to cast him selectively. Mm. Tom Berenger was kind of a bit goofy. But, uh, yeah, I thought that was, that was quite fun, though, in the sense that he was the most uh, cartoonish of um, of the people on that. Certainly on, on, on that level where, where he appears quite a lot because, of course, he's not being played by Tom Berenger, if you like. He's being played by Eames, isn't he? But in, in, um, yeah, but I think we, we lost an opportunity there, you know. Mm. I mean, I've mentioned it before on the podcast how hilarious I thought it was when Philip Seymour Hoffman was playing Tom Cruise. Yes. <laughs> I think that's beautiful, and I've always enjoyed face-off to see that pair of hammer jammers lampooning <laughs> one another. Yeah. But I don't think Berenger got hardy downright do you know what i mean yeah yeah i understand that and i think that in there i mean maybe that was deliberate i'm not sure but let, let's talk about ellen page because she had kind of drew the short straw in terms of her character and in terms of what she was given to do did i i think that you're a fan of ellen page I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if i'm right in saying that brendan but tell us what you thought about her I think she's great but my god i mean do we really always need some sort of blank cipher at the middle of the film just so there's someone to be hit over the head with yeah. Like phone books full of exposition. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a scene... Okay, another one on the list. I'm going to actually single out a scene that's been particularly bad. A little okay. sequence is where Leo and Ellen take their elevator trip. Yes. Oh, God, the acting's just bad. They're in a different sort of film. They're sort of playing this sort of... Very theatrical, and it's very demonstrative. And they're ladling out all of this exposition, and I think they're playing up the emotion to try and hide it. Right mm. to, try, to try and draw some sort of some sort of humanity out of what is essentially them just hitting us over the head with a bunch of rules and backstory and very arbitrary rules, I might add. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll we'll come on to that. I think as uh, as we get through your through your list, but yeah. um, one one of the problems I think um, a lot of people tended to overlook was the fact that you did have this obvious character um obvious cipher in in ellen page and when you have leonardo dicaprio and ellen page sitting in outside the uh, the um the cafe in paris and he sort of you know teases where you know, how did we get here you didn't you know you don't remember when your, your dreams start and all that kind of stuff everything that you that, that you saw in the trailers um it kind of became uh a little farcical and um for me when when you discover because i do this quite a lot when you discover when when you're dreaming that you are in a dream and you can kind of control it not only does um does that kind of freak the whole dream out and and things start collapsing and falling but but also there there is a moment where you realize you know christ anything could happen i can do anything i'm kind of mastermind destiny there are no consequences and this is really really exciting and even when paris was folding up and even when you had cars driving up walls and you had um you know things exploding all the rest of it there was um and, and bridges coming out of nowhere there was never any of that kind of excitement that i think a lot of people would have been sold on when they saw the um you know when they saw the uh, the, the the trailers and also there is a um a scene in it where uh, it's quite a nice visual trick where you have ellen page conjuring up these two mirrors opposite each other so of course you know creating this sort of you know infinite infinite corridor and she walks up to um to one of the mirrors she puts her hand on it and it shatters now when i saw that in a in a, in a clip that came online i immediately thought of um satoshi Kon's paprika which i've yeah, talked about yeah. and 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 i then uh, put it on the post i said here's here's the picture that you see in the trailer and here's the here's the bit in um in in, in paprika and i think a lot of people they they, they may have drawn the um you know the comparisons between the two because they are they are very very similar. But seeing that and seeing what it had, what you know, sort of um, the way that uh, Con uses it, 
sort of you know as a kind of a gateway into a kind of a deeper world and seeing the way that, the, that Christopher Nolan used it kind of um, crystallized my entire feelings about it. Whereas when I saw Paprika, I loved it. There was a real sense of excitement and fear and consequence um, and of showing you things that you really haven't seen before, things that you're actually quite afraid of. And there was, yeah. there was very little of that within Inception. I thought that, that, you know, I dream about things all the time and, you know, they're usually quite, 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 quite dull, but never as, as consistently dull as walking around a hotel. And um, do you know what I mean? And, and it, I know that they're, that they're being created, but there was people talking about, oh, this is this, you know, this is amazing. They're they're floating, and it and it's all dreamlike. It's not dreamlike at all. It's just it's putting um, a kind of a heist movie and, and 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 these you know fairly fairly regular characterizations of people in a slightly different real world that we see. Yeah. Well, I mean. Uh... Here's an argument that that needs to be had. Is this supposed to be like dreams? Is it supposed to feel like dreams? Or have they bought themselves some leverage by saying that it's a dream from the inside, therefore it feels real? But the the sort of true answer to this is that some things happen in it that are associative in the way that dreams are. So we know that that can happen. The train coming down the road, for example. The shattering of the mirrors. these, These associative things... Why aren't there more of them? Why is there a finite mm. number of them? It's not a question of whether there are or aren't. You can choose either. But why Why just these ones? Why just the ones that are... Oh, and I'm about to answer my question. Why just the ones that are plot relevant? Well, no, but that's it. Exactly. You've got the, you've got the train driving down the street, which is quite a nice visual trick. And it's, it, it's, kind, it's kind of interesting to see. It's not like a 20-foot you know, you know, titanium banana coming down the street, um, which is the kind of thing that, that, that would appear in people's dreams, I'm sure. But it's, it's, it, it's created because it's, it serves a purpose. And there's very little humour, like we've already said, but also very little playfulness in it. And I think it wouldn't have destroyed the film to have had a little bit of that. Certainly not in the... Um, in the kind of in the opening scenes when they're trying to just work it out, but well, it, it's up to him, right? Mm, Whether he does that or not. But he kind of, um, he kind of, he kind of doesn't. He sort of sits on the fence, and he sort of uses it and doesn't use it. You know. Yeah, but I, I think that you know, I'm I'm trying to you know figure out arguments of people who who really enjoyed the film, and they, they would say that it it doesn't make a difference what he could have done. It's actually what he did do, and. Um, and that's fine, I guess you know because yeah, but, the, but you just you just you just hit one of the almighty important inception nails right on the head. Mm-hmm. It's not about what he could have done, but let's listen to what people are saying. They're talking about this film in terms of what things could mean. It could mean this. It could mean that. It could mm-hmm. mean the other. No, let's talk about what it does mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, do we have a particularly pertinent um, thing you didn't like about Inception to, to insert here, Brendan? Should we have another one? Let's go um, for it. I should put a jingle, shouldn't I? I'd sing, but it would ruin it. I don't don't think the action sequences are even competent. Um, As case in point, remember the sequence where they're on the industry and they're in a taxi cab. Vaguely, yeah. Yeah, vaguely, exactly, memorable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, There is a sequence where Joseph Gordon-Levitt is firing shots at a projection of someone's unconscious, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And what we do is we see a shot of the taxi and then there's, like, no one there. Right, mm-hmm. a shot of the person that is going to get shot coming towards the taxi, and there's no one there because Joe Levitt's like hiding behind the door or sort of ducking undercover. Right, mm-hmm. cut back, and he's fully there firing. His action of going behind and then coming back from cover isn't on screen at all. Right. all. Mm-hmm. 
the interesting thing, the impetus, the action, his actual proactive action isn't even there. It's like he's appearing and disappearing. Reflectively, the scene just feels choppy, right? Mm. Now, if audiences were, were being neutral, and it's going to be some years before people will be neutral, they, they'd find these action scenes a little dull and quite hard to follow because the kinetics in the editing are actually quite poor. And that's just a prime example. The actual thing we want to see and need to see at that moment isn't even on screen. Would people argue that that's in some ways, uh, and again, this is a real stretch and it's not my argument, but some people say, well, that's it. It's part of the dream, isn't it? Sometimes you shift around and blah, 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 blah. But he's not shifting around. He's not, he's not spontaneously appearing and disappearing. Mm. He's hiding behind a bit of a taxi. Sure, yeah, yeah. Right? Oh, in my dream, I was like laying on the sofa and then suddenly I yeah, sat yeah, up yeah. a few inches. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't make any sense. Okay, but I mean... One of the... I was on the beach and it was really weird. Fine. <laughs> suddenly, suddenly, my hand was in a slightly different position. Um, one of the things that people have criticised Christopher Nolan about before um, is, is his sort of handling of action, and it is the editing. Do you think that Inception in any way improves on on what we've seen before from him? No, it's it's weak. Okay, do you think it's got um, worse? It's not just the editing. Now, people, this is a very popular, very popular misconception about action. People always talk about, oh, it's cut too fast. You mm. can't follow it. I could cut you an action sequence very quickly that you could follow perfectly. It's a combination of staging and editing issues, mm. okay? You need to be able to be, you know, in the zone on both of those things to pull the sequence off. And they're badly staged and therefore very hard to edit comprehensively. Okay. Well, I mean, we, we've talked about, um, you know, the action that the people are... Um, people aren't saying it's, you know, an absolutely wonderful... I think people are... Um, are enjoying it because, and this is this is one of the criticism, uh, the, um, the the things people have been saying about it. It's not a criticism; it's something they, they enjoyed about it, which is that they liked having to think in a cinema for a change. And it was a kind of a novel experience, and it kind of that, that kind of just drove me crazy. Um, not because you know they 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 choose not to think in in, in other films, but the in thinking, that was the the thing that, that completely engaged them. Whereas I've been completely seduced by by many many films this year, um, and I, and I I just got one on DVD the other day. I, I got a single man, and I was totally taken in by that. I was engaged on every level, and uh, you know, an, an intellectual level as well as an emotional level. Now, where, where I would draw this sort of comparison with Inception, I wasn't in any way involved in the emotion of it and that you kind of in, in in the kind of intellectual in, in, engagement of it but it was nothing that, that that made me think this is something out of the ordinary and i think that's you know one, one of the criticisms that, that i would have of it is uh is, is not of the film itself but of the fact that people are just literally falling over themselves right to talk right. about the 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 intelligence of it and i'm not right. saying that it's, it's almost a, uh, a measure of how how convoluted something is between how complex something is and i think that um I'm not sure how it's going to be seen in, in like one year's time, in two years' time, because I, I got a very similar vibe from when I first saw The Matrix, you know, for the first time, which is a, which is an influence on this film, whether it likes it or not. The fact that the world you see, you know, on screen is not necessarily the world that that, it, that it's portrayed to be, and there are certain elasticities that that you can that you can ha- you know make and and you can make you know great hay with that. You can you know jump around from rooftop to rooftop, or you can not. And I think that um, Inception doesn't doesn't go down that route for a particular reason but i don't know when i when, when i was thinking about it i was i was thinking that this, this is a you know a, 
a film that, that is going to be remembered for being an intelligent blockbuster. That's how people are going to say it. Would you use, use those words to describe it, Brandon? No. Okay, tell us why not. Uh, because while it's a blockbuster, I don't think... I don't think it, I mean I'm not saying it's I'm not saying it's like in remedial class and it can't do up its laces. Mm. I'm just saying why would I focus on this film being intelligent? There have been films this summer that have actually managed to hold themselves together in a more comprehensible way. And you can only judge the film on what's there. You can't make excuses for it and say, Oh, but this bit doesn't make sense, but they understood it really. Mm. No. What they've made is on the screen. If they're not smart enough to actually make it communicate the ideas it's supposed to communicate and for its logistics to actually add up, that's their fault. Mm. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have to evaluate that, okay? I would not describe this film as intelligent. Can you understand why people do though? Yes, and I, I, I'm just gonna get hate mail if I tell you why. <laughs> well, I mean, here's here's something I noticed with The Matrix, right? Uh-huh. It's a pretty stupid film, but if it's just a little bit cleverer than you, or just a little bit more stupid than you, you're gonna fall for it. Sure. Because if you're just a little bit cleverer. You think you're fantastic for working out, and you're a genius, and you only just worked out there for it must be brilliant. Yeah, a little bit clever. Oh, I can almost get it. I can almost get it. I'm a genius. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Um, we saw a lot of that. We did, and I think we are seeing a lot of that now. But and I'm just trying to think of. You said that, not me. What the? the well, no. Uh, the thing is, I can understand what, why, why people um, are, are falling over themselves and I can understand why people are calling it an intelligent blockbuster because I can... Why? Well, I think it's because it's, it's unusual for a film to be um, as, as convoluted in terms of... Uh, you mean pretentious? No, no, no. Well, yeah, fair enough, but it, it's almost like the, the difference between mystery and, and, and muddle. Do you know what I mean? It, it kind of ties itself up in in so many knots, but it kind of just leaves it behind. It keeps doing it, and it keeps expecting you to kind of catch up, but at the, but at the same time, it sort of says, you know, you need to pay attention, and people have, have talked about this, you know, on, on, on Twitter and, and, and on the site, talking about the fact that um, it does require you to keep up. You can't fall asleep. Really? As it's if... quite simple. No, 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 it's quite simple. Fair enough, and, and I would agree with you on that, but the very fact that people are pointing that out makes me kind of sad you know what i mean they're sort of saying wow we're gonna to have to really pay attention to this film we're gonna really have to do yeah, it and this one yeah, you know what it, I mean? yeah, yeah for yeah. one we've got to have our brain turned on Listen, I, it's really not that complicated and when we get onto one of my other things in a bit i'll actually there's a bit that people find ridiculously complicated i'll point out how simple it is okay um shall we move on to another one of your another one i'll of your do bits? that one now then do that uh, one now yeah right so there's like reality or there isn't. Let's just assume there's reality mm. and they go from that into a dream and into that they go into a dream and into that they go into a dream. Yeah. And then below that there's this sort of uh, freeform dream space yeah. called, called Limbo. What else? Right? Uh, and people are like, well, it's amazing. You have to keep track on which one's which. No, you don't. They're completely different locations. They don't look anything like each other. You can understand they're inside each other just as easy you can understand rooms in a corridor. Mm. Oh, it's an amazing structure. No, it isn't. Loads of films have had this structure. It's just not been done with dreams. It's just been done with actuality. So, for example, someone's trying to be stealthy and sneak in somewhere. They've got someone on headphones going, OK, I've taken out that close circuit camera. Look out for the guards around the corner. How many times have we seen that? Do you mm. know what I mean? And yeah. then the helicopter's coming overhead. It's just these degrees of intentionality, as Robin Dunbar calls them. This idea of being able to project that there's just some sort of other awareness looking at you. Yes, you've got to be able to juggle four rooms in a row and be able to cross-cut between them. 
Jesus, that's not even moderately difficult. It's not even moderately unusual for a film to have a structure like this. But for some reason, people are are going crazy, and I can't work out. They're using the word dreams, John, so that people are thinking, oh, it's inside one another. Now, but the thing is, if they were behaving like they were inside another, fair enough. So let's remember one of these rules, okay? Time changes as we go from layer to layer, remember that? Yeah, yeah. And it gives us some sort of proportion of change. Yeah. Okay? And this aesthetically changes one of the levels of the film because as the van goes off, it goes into slow motion. Yes. Why? And why are the others all at the same speed? Yeah, fair enough. Well, you know the reason why, why that cross-cutting is. cross-cutting between a bunch of them at the same speed and then every time you go that it's slow? It doesn't add up, Nolan. You either keep those proportions you talked about or you don't. In each world, the proportion is, is you know, uh, inflated in a sense so that they're equivalent. Why is this one different? Why are you paying lip service to some intellectual concept that you're not going to follow through? Would they say because if because you were... that's all you ever do, man. That's <laughs> all you ever do. <laughs> that's fair enough. And I'm going to try and work out why that is. I mean, maybe it's because um, if you show in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a normal film where there's no different, you know, time frames, there's no different, you know, levels of reality. If you were to show a, uh, a, a van falling off a bridge backwards, you might shoot it in slow motion. <laughs> you might, mightn't you? Or uh, if you were having some people floating around a hotel corridor, you might shoot that in slow motion. You might shoot anything in slow motion. The fact of the matter is, he knows what parameters he was working with, and he should be aware of what the implications of going to slow motion at that point are. Um, yeah, I mean, I I would agree with that. I, I just don't think that people would pay that much attention to. It. I think that it, no, it, it would they follow. didn't pay attention to any of it. But and yet them. That's that's the one point that, 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 that they're trying to make. So they're trying to say that they have to pay attention to this film. They have to Should we have it. another one of my little things? Because it yeah, relates to that. I'll picture. go for it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So there's some sort of association between shifts in gravity and what is happening to the dreamer that you're yeah. with. Agreed? Right? Yes. Okay. So we've got, for example, a bit where the car goes over something and they're all asleep. So the water in the glass rumbles. Yeah. Right? So as the van starts falling, they all go into gravitational freefall. Yes. Right? Why is that gravity changing in all different directions when they're just going in one constant direction? It's not like the van is flipping around. And this, is, this distortion of time isn't registered either. I right? It's not saying, scaled yeah. down. Their gravity is not changing really slowly, is it? Mm. It changes instantaneously. Yeah. Oh, he's not thought that through either. <laughs> but people would say that it makes for more entertaining then don't set up that rule use a different rule mm. they're all made up arbitrary rules you could have made up any rules you bloody well wanted well in fact he did make up any rules <laughs> you bloody well wanted about twenty-five thousand pages of the things why didn't he make up a rule that related to what he wanted to show rather than one that proved what he was trying to show had nothing to do with the rule that he made up yeah okay fair enough i think that we certainly get that point but let, let let's talk about the big one let's talk about the um i think this would probably be one of your or both of your final points here. Give us some um, the ones that you were saving to the end, and let's see how they how it sort of ties well, in. Well, let's have a, you describe what the end scene is. Then. The end scene is um, uh, they wake up on the on the plane where um, uh, everything seems to have worked out perfectly. Killian Murphy is going to change his uh, change his mind about the company, and and uh, they've all completed their job. Everyone's alive. Everyone's well. Leonardo DiCaprio has his has his ticket home, and therefore he goes home. 
and uh, he sees his two children, which have appeared in, in various different points throughout the film as, uh, as, as kind of images. He sees them for real. He sees them uh, out, out the back and they turn to him and we finally see their faces, which is something that we've been waiting for, for ages. He gets his totem, which is his thing to tell him if he's in a dream or not. He starts spinning it on the table and he walks out and the shot of him walking out pans back a little bit and then you have the totem still spinning and we are left to wait for it to fall or not, thus or proving not. if it's a dream it or not. It, yeah, it, it fades to black. Nolan's a little bit of a tease there, but um, uh, the <laughs> thing is, I've actually read a lot of people who say you've got to go back and watch it because just literally seconds before the you know the sort of cuts black, it does start to wobble a little bit. Well, that, well, about two seconds before it goes whoa, whoa, whoa. And then it starts again. And he's done that, obviously. So we go, oh, it's falling. Oh, it isn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Oh, it's going through. No, it's real life. Maybe it isn't. Yeah. That's the reaction we're supposed to have. The reaction I had at that moment, and I'm not asking him to share this, was like, mm. when's it going to cut to black then? It's going to cut to black in a minute. We just know it is. Yeah. But oh, he, he was always setting it up. He, he was always setting it up to see it. And, it, and in some ways, um, it doesn't, it wouldn't answer that much. It, it wouldn't have as much emotional res- relevant, uh, resonance, I don't think, if we it's found out what it was. It's cheap, right? He's buying a sort of a, oh, wow, yeah. by doing that, right? And, and what, it's, a, it, it's a last moment of the film that's basically on the level of having a conversation with your most boring stoned mate. What if everything's like not real, man? I mean, like back in the seventies, Fastbender made a brilliant TV series called World on a Wire, right? right. Which is probably the first film I've ever seen. Right. I, it was a vicious film. Probably the first film I've ever seen that deals with this sort of like people becoming aware that their reality isn't real. That sort okay. of matrix sort of thing. Right. And then there's uh, towards the end at another level, they're like, hang on, how do we know who this one is? Right. Right. And Fassbinder being both quite interested in uh, melodrama, for want of a better word, but also quite an intellectual, manages to make a, a, a thriller a sci-fi thriller that has ideas, right? Mm. It's a film of ideas, but it's uh, it's an entertainer as well, right? And it was broadcast on mainstream television, the German equivalent of ITV or okay. whatever, right? And it succeeds brilliantly, actually. It's really good. It, okay. It's far, far better than, than, than these, oh, but like, but like, everything's like a dream, films that we've seen since, right? Right. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so there's nothing novel about it even. But I do think it's the novelty that people are responding to. Mm. I think it's like they're seeing this film that sort of like it hits their sort of like, yeah, man, I've, like, I've thought that, I've had that idea before now. Because we all have this sort of idea. We all also have this idea at some point, very solipsistic idea that, in fact, everything's about us at some yeah. point. You know what I mean? We all go through these sort of things. Of course, it doesn't take skill. I mean, it's like when someone says, oh, I'm going to make a film about Giant Shark and it's going to be scary. Well, I don't know about it being scary, but of course you can't take the credit for making people throw the sharks. Sure. It's not like Inception has created this notion, like, maybe. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We, we need this notion because the reality of the fact, no, we're just the side effect of, of an infinitely complicated universe. Consciousness is, that has no free will attached to it, and when we die, it'll be like that we never existed in infinite void. Isn't very nice. <laughs> right? So, of course, we're drawn to these other things. The constructs of emotions we've got in us reject the reality of their being. So when we get to the end of this film here, pretty much the only way the film does make sense, because so much of what's gone before is inconsistent, is if you say, actually, the whole thing's a dream. Now, at some point, 
happened on the level of, quote, reality in the film, because we've seen the top fall over before. Yeah. So it, within the rules that are established within the film, at some point we're in a level that is reality. Are we in a level... So the question at the end isn't, as some people have misconstrued, is reality fake as well? No, it's not that. It's, did he come out or not? Did he stay in it or not? Yeah. That's, the, that's the question, right? Yeah. But... Um, you know, that kind of confuses the, the, the matter somewhat. And, 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 and the only way you can really explain it away is even that level of reality where the top falls over isn't real either. And some people have rushed to its defence in that respect. Um, but so what, right? Because what that means is we've got this whole film which is supposedly about the catharsis of this man trying to deal with the death of this woman. Mm. And if it's all a dream, we don't know how she died. We don't even know if she looks like that. We don't even know it's a woman. She might be a manifestation of any anxiety, whatever, if it's all a dream. So at this point, it's just could, 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 could. It's not giving us answers. It's vague to the point of being... It's like, you know, way beyond what we could politely call wishy-washy. It's just like... It's just, it's just a guff at that point. And if you sort of sift through this guff to try and find some, you know, solid matter in it, what you end up finding is like, but the film turns on the sixpence at that point. It doesn't, he, his emotional interest has changed. Mm. At that point, what, why has he decided to do this suddenly? And why is it not registered? And why are we not let into it? Now, there is some argument that this film is a film about filmmaking, the emotional catharsis that filmmaking gives us. And that filmmaking is, is, a, is a way of making dreams. If I want to convince you that filmmaking is emotionally powerful and it offers you emotional catharsis, right, there are two basic ways I can do it. I can give you emotional catharsis through a film, at which point you'll remember that that happened and you'll assume that that films have that power, or I can tell you it. If I tell you it, it's in my best interest to also make sure you have an emotional catharsis. If I tell you in it, in a film that's so sterile and so exposition-driven and so leaden that there's no way I could be emotionally invested in it in the way that I would in a, in a, in a typical movie, but I tell you it anyway, well, that's why I'd just be bloody lying to you. But I think that's one of the things that... that, that when, I, when I came out of it, I was thinking it, the, there were certain bits in that film that, that kind of looked unusual, uh, you know, for want of a better word, and there were certain bits in it that I, that I didn't know what was coming next, and that was absolutely fine. I wasn't engaged in any way, and I'm a father of a of a little boy, so you basically only all you have to do is, is kind of you know project a, a man and, and and his son on screen, and I'm a you know a blubbering wreck usually. But for some reason, I was completely unengaged with any kind of um, emotional attachment to this film, and I'd, I I mean I'm assuming that the people who who love this film and who think it's them. You know, gonna 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 change the face of uh, of blockbusters from now on. Uh, did have that Im- you know emotional connection to it? They they, they well, did. you know what? What did they have the emotional connection to? I think because was... what they're doing is they're claiming Nolan is a genius. They're claiming all these things. They've got an emotional connection to a love of film. I think they've got an emotional connection to championing this film. They've got an emotional connection to making themselves sound clever. Different people have got all these things. I'm not saying everyone who likes it's got mm. all these emotional connections, but none of these emotional connections are like. My God, the journey Dom Cobb went on. Oh my God, that catharsis at the end. I was blubbing for him. Bullshit. Yeah, you see, um, one of the things, and I think we'll kind of use this to um, to kind of draw to a close is um, uh, first of all, I'd like to hear from from people who who really enjoyed it, and I'm sure that when we put this podcast out, you'll have people who are they like, will not. Say, they will. They will just say the opposite of what I'm saying. I don't think so. I, yeah, but no, but they John, they, they will believe happen. it. Oh, yeah, fine. I mean, um, I'm, I'm sure that that's that's all going to be the case when when you have an opinion that that you know that is so kind of against the grain of what this other person in in question thinks about. But yeah, they'll but, actually just dispute what you're saying 
to make an opposite argument whether what they're saying is something they believe in or not. Okay, and, and, and here's my question. Why do they do that? Why have they imbued Inception with this genre-changing, uh, box-office-saving intelligence, you know, filmmaking thing? Uh, yeah, what, what, why, have they, why have they chosen Inception? Were they, were they seduced into it by, by, by the notion of, of kind of it being the antidote to Transformers 2? Nolan's um, already been chosen, man. Nolan's already been singled out. Something happened, right? Unfortunately, we lost, we lost Heath Ledger at the time that he was an unorthodox choice for a big fanboy film, okay? That sparked something. Right. That film came out, Nolan's reputation snowballed, okay? As a result of all sorts of things that were going on at that time, okay? It was gratifying in any number of ways for people, The Dark Knight, okay? Yeah. It's sort of been do- like, oh, it can be some stupid twatty film about a bloke dressed up in a daft costume hitting people and, you know, serious critics take it seriously. You know, it's just sort of gratification of offering people something that's relatively basic and relatively simple, uh, and then feeling like they need an excuse for it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, what the hell? I, I enjoy films in which coloured things jump around and hit each other all the time. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I don't feel I need an excuse to, like, um, you know, some sort of B-movie or something. I understand the level on which they're, 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 they're put together, and, and I appreciate them for that. If I sit down and watch a, a car chase movie, you know, I don't need it to be a car chase movie that revolutionises the genre. Do you know what I mean? So I think something happened there where everybody's sort of like guilt about liking a certain sort of film and a sort of endorsement came. And of course that's when we got to this, yeah, now he's going to be making this film like, but it's so personal, it's so radical and intelligent, they're only letting him make it, okay, because he made them so much money, which just propagates all these myths about Hollywood, okay, all these ideas about Hollywood and studios, that just aren't true either. This is not some sort of strange personal film, it's a big budget science fiction blockbuster. Oh, it's such a, it's a strange one. Is it though? Is it though? It's a pretentious one. Um, okay, so there's all of that going on there. Mm. And also this sort of like, you know, the scene of the, scene of the crime is inside your mind and all these sort of ideas that sort of like um, are enigmatic and therefore, mm. you know, the blood rushes to the part of the brain that deals with puzzles. And we're thinking, oh yeah, what's going on here? What's really going on here? Um, I, think it's just, I think it's just a series of dominoes, okay? But if you stand back and take it apart, I'd love to. Give me a pair of scissors and every print in existence. <laughs> if you stand back and you, you take... I, I don't care how long it would take. If you stand back and you take it apart and you look at it, it's pretty crappy. And on that note, let us leave her. Let we us... can't leave there. The game is only over when somebody says Mornington Crescent. This is my final point. If anyone ever knows, I'm sorry I haven't a clue. They play a game called Mornington Crescent. What happens is uh, there are no rules to this game. It's a fictional game. And the rules are massively complicated and arbitrary because they're made up on the spot just to just to sound like rules. <laughs> it's a sort of satire of, like, you know, weird plays in bridge and, and, and obscure bits of chess and all, all this sort of lore of these games. They play Mornington Crescent and they're sort of like, you know, I've just trumped your triplex manoeuvre with the Hodgkinson's 1971 opening and all this sort of stuff, right? This film is Mornington Crescent. It's people spouting arbitrary rules... Okay, that you know, there needs to be more of for the whole thing to add up, or there needs to be less of for them to not contradict one another. Take your pick, and it just carries on until someone says Mornington Crescent. And the Mornington Crescent in this film is, by the way, it's all a dream. And they could have done that at any point. It's a get out of jail card for, for a film like this, by the way, dreams. And the whole point is, right, hang on, when was the last time you had a dream which was about dreams? 
Isn't that an incredible coincidence? If the whole thing is a dream, we're, we're, the whole big trick, the whole big sleight of hand is he happens to be having a dream about levels of dreaming. What an amazing coincidence. Well, it's coincidence that I think has uh, proved very successful. And I think that, that e- even though um, people will listen to this and they will write in and they will dispute you, um, Brandon, I think that... Um, it has it has done incredibly well. That that's what we've known so far, and I think that Christopher Nolan's star is only on the up. And whatever happens with Superman, whatever he'll he'll sort of discuss or unleash or not at Comic Con this weekend, I think it'll be very interesting to see what you know what he does with it and what his next step is. Because there is an army of fans out there who um, who will maybe hear no wrong, um, but uh, I think it'll be interesting to see exactly what we you know what exactly he does next so uh, that's that's our discussion of inception and i think that you know you can sort of tell what what we thought about it and we do seem to walk against the um you know sort of walk against the the huge tide of of love for this film they're not playing it up a bit let's be honest yeah fair enough but you know i think uh, as, as long as you can back it up and you know you kind of give your honest opinion because i i i had a re- had a reaction to this film and and i'm trying to sort of you know work out exactly you know what my reaction is uh, and and how it seems to differ quite a lot with with other people. But if you, if you're listening to this podcast and you and you shout yourself hoarse, do get in touch with us. Our email address is um, mouthoffatheyyouguys.co.uk. Tell us what you think of, uh, of what we've been talking about. If you've got points that you want to dispute, fine. We will definitely come back to them on a on a future podcast. But I have to say that um, I'd be very interested to to see exactly. Um, you know how how many people will try and shout us down because I think it will be quite a few people because that this is just that that film. So um, this okay. is that film. This is that film. I think that should be its uh, it should be its tagline. Okay, um, Brandon, that's us for Inception. Did you want to do a rip from the crypt? I do want to do a rip from the crypt. Okay. Yeah, can we do it quickly? Okay, so we're going to do our, our regular rip from the crypt uh, feature feature today and there, there isn't exactly a, a kind of a theme that um that kind of draws them together but uh and my choice and I'm, I'm going to go first is a, a very well-known film but i've been talking to a lot of people at the moment and they have never ever seen it and it kind of bugs me so i'm going to try and push it as much as i can it's an undisputed classic um it's a 1946 film it's a powell and Pressburger film it's a matter of life and death now i saw this I would have to say probably about 10 years ago. And it was one of those beautiful, beautiful moments where I didn't know what to expect. I'd never heard anything. I was watching it because it was a David Niven film of all things. And I knew that there was some, you know, some cameo from, uh, from Richard Attenborough in there. Some, but that's kind of what my, you know, kind of cultural osmosis had kind of picked up. But when I saw it, it unfolded into this absolutely beautiful fantasy that I have still never sort of found, um, you know, any kind of comparison to. Um, It's, like I said, it is very well known. It's got some really, really beautiful uh, tricks up its sleeve, um, but it is an amazingly uh, emotional film. You really, really believe everything that these particular characters are are going through. Um, I'm trying to draw it in kind of a line to, um, you know, to Inception and and I'm, I'm kind of struggling a little bit but but the fact is that you have david niven who's flying a plane and it's uh, and it's going down and um he's talking on the on the radio to this person who he's never met and he, it's it's such a 
you know the the scenes with them with them, with, them, with them talking uh, over the radio um it could have been so cheesy could have been so terrible and there's a very british stiff upper lip you know notion to it all but when when the kind of when it unfolds and you, and you have this sort of you know afterlife which is um really really beautifully rendered um with all of its sort of you know bureaucracies and all of its you know characters that, that are involved you you see david never walking through this world and having to prove his love and you know kind of come back from the dead uh, it's just a really really beautiful fantasy film and if, and if you haven't seen it do do check it out because it is um it's one of those films that will surprise you it's the kind of film that you wouldn't have expected to to have been made you know gosh nearly what 60 uh 60 years ago 60 70 years ago it's just uh it's a beautiful beautiful film uh brendan i'm, I'm sure you've seen this what do you think of a matter of life and death i think it's a, i think it's a wonderful film remarkable that it was commissioned effectively as a piece of propaganda to help the relationship between the us and the uk at that time uh because of the war effort and there was some sort of resentment about them coming over and joining the war so late and you know all this other stuff um so the, that's why our, our central um, romantic couple, a transatlantic. Mm, absolutely. Um, so um, there was that element in there, but they, they went far beyond their brief. And it is quite remarkable, uh, an achievement, really. Um, it's one of the best-looking films mm. um, of that period. And uh, it's, um, you know, one of those films that takes a, a couple of brave aesthetic steps, contrary to what a lot of people might have assumed at the time, the real life sections are filmed in Technicolor. The sequences in Heaven are filmed in black and white. Mm. The sequences in Heaven use great force perspective and background matte effects, and they look they look quite wonderful. I'm always quite struck when the like the table tennis ball freezes. And yes, things like yes. That. It's such a nice low-fi effect, but it, it's so mm. it's so effective and it's 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 perfectly staged and, and, and really well uh, mounted. And I think the cast are great. Mm. They're in a slightly theatrical mode. The film itself is in a slightly theatrical mode. Yeah, yeah. It sounds great, and ultimately, you know, you end up uh, you end up really invested mm. through through good writing, great plotting, uh, the stakes being being raised incrementally and, and sensibly, and, and and just brilliant filmmaking. And I'm not sure if it's the kind of film that people would necessarily stumble upon. Um, I think that if if you've got someone who enjoys film and they they can come to it from you know many different angles if you're interested in films about the war if you're interested in in, in kind of fantasy films or or even the films of Paul and Pressburg you will find it one way but it's the kind of film that plays you know in the afternoon on film four or some other channel like that and you know just do do try and catch it and and the the Richard Attenborough cameo is um of an English pilot who is uh, finds himself in heaven and he kind of looks down and he's it, he has only got like a, I think it's only one line. I'm, I'm not even sure what the line is, but I think he just realizes that, that, that this is heaven. And it's such a beautiful moment. And it's, it kind of makes me well up every single time I say, I don't know if it's just the way he, way he plays it or it's, it's the way that it's set up, but it's just, it's one of those films that kind of really packs a punch and, and earns every single beat. So I'm very happy with it. So uh, that's my rip from the crypt. Um, it's, it's mentioned uh, very briefly in the, um, uh, cameraman, the documentary about Jack Cardiff. That's, uh, out next week on DVD and is uh, fully recommended. And there's there's a le- you know a little bit about about uh, a matter of life and death. Oh, excellent! But I'm hopefully getting that you know through the post, so I'll I'll definitely definitely check that out. But um, okay, uh, Brandon, give us your rip from the crypt for this week. Pretty tricky this one, John, because we have a theme that you've now not stuck to, uh, um, and I've been trying to I've been trying to think of something that goes with the theme, and I've been trying to think you know. 
what do, you know what do we what do we do? You should, um, you should, you, Brenda, you should you should stick to your I one because let's, let's, Christopher Nolan and and uh, let's let our listeners in. We were going to talk about the new Kubrick because people have been yeah who, who is the new Kubrick? who is the new Kubrick because people have been saying that Christopher Nolan is and that's actually a a question for a far longer podcast which we're not going to discuss now. But you can us your rip from the crypt based on that theme. It's actually yeah, I could solve the question of whether Christopher Nolan is the new Kubrick so quite easily if somebody would let me do a, <laughs> if somebody would let me do a DNA test. Um, <laughs> it's not that new a Kubrick; it's quite old. Um, I think um, I, I don't know. See, I wanted to be really clever and have one that tied in with what you've just said, and you know, I was thinking maybe something Kim Hunter in it, but all the stuff with Kim Hunter is sort of very well known, isn't it? You know, she was a monkey in uh, Planet of the Apes and so on. Um, uh, a uh, very attractive monkey, actually. Uh, more, more so than uh, more so than, than Miss Bonham Carter. But if we were dealing with a new Kubrick, I, I was going to sort of cheat and actually sort of have a film that was, was never made. Okay, that's interesting. Go for you, uh, And I was going to have Daniel Waters' film, uh, A Model Daughter. Um, and I'll tell you why. He said that when he was writing Heathers, the idea, um, when, you know, was that he thought that, in a sense... Uh, Kubrick attacked genres and tried to make the definitive film in that genre, right? Mm. So uh, he said that um, Heathers, which I, I honestly think is the, the greatest screenplay ever, ever written. Okay. Right? Um, he said that that was his Kubrick's high school film. You know, and he was writing it for Kubrick. And he honestly sort of had the pretense to think that... that uh, uh, Kubrick would would somehow find the script and love it and, and not be able to resist making it to a, to a film, um, and he wrote another uh, another great, incredibly sharp uh, and venomous satire called uh, Model Daughter, um, and at some point he actually did a rewrite on it with Gillian Armstrong, uh, okay. the Australian film director, um, and uh, I've, I've I've read the the draft that's. You know, worked, worked on by the two of them, and I've read a draft uh, in which um, it was just him. Um, basically, the uh, the premise of the story is that they're looking for this uh, model to be like the show model for this designer Lombardi. Okay, and Lombardi is putting out some sort of secret fashion item that no one knows about. Okay, and uh, all they're calling it is the Lombardi. They're not revealing what it is, and there's going to be a surprise later who this is who this is going to be. So we've got these fashion agents trying to find the perfect model. Okay, uh, once she's found, um, she's only referred to by the letter H. I've always wondered whether she was supposed to be a Heather. Or yeah, not. yeah. Um, uh, in some sense, maybe, maybe she is, and. Um, it's about her being sucked into this sort of fashion world and witnessing it, you know, as, a, as an outsider coming in. And it's absolutely full of satirical humour, um, ripping apart all of the conventions of fashion. If you remember something like pret a the, the Robert Oldman film. Yeah, yeah. Kind of limp and didn't really have any teeth. This is a much more, slightly, well, it's a slightly heightened version, but a much more satirical and much more acerbic version of, of, of that sort of story. Um, and it's about you know there's sort of riffs on the emperor's new clothes in there in a way that Pret Porte did as well, but not in such an overt and, and obvious way. Um, and and then there's you know stuff about plastic surgery in there, which is 
kind of ghoulish and a little bit frightening and kind of goes to strange places. Um, it it re- reminds me, in a small way, of Neil Butte's The Shape of Things, which it predates. Um, so it was, it was a great film that had Kubrick made it would have been, you know, it would have been very much in his wheelhouse. Right. And it would have been, you know, like a return to the sort of, uh, to the Lolita, right? This sort of social drama mm. satire um, that he, he kind of didn't quite get with Eyes Wide Shut. But this script never made it to Kubrick. Indeed, it doesn't appear to have ever made it to anybody and it was never filmed. When was it written? I think about nineteen ninety ninety one. Okay, I'm just I trying think, to put it in context. I think one of my dates. I think one of my dates. Uh, one of my drafts has got ninety one on it, and I don't know if that's the the former or the latter. Now, just thinking back. Okay. Um, but it's really quite bold and um, a big. And there are scenes in the fashion world that are grotesque, and it kind of goes beyond modelling people on the outside it kind of gets to modelling them on the inside and it's not that sounds a bit Cronenbergian I suppose in a way it kind of is mm. but it's, it's full of it's full of ideas and it's just very sharp very sharp and I take it that people can't find this script out there because the thing is I'm going to have trouble linking to a I think you probably I think you probably can but I don't know that you should sure um, it's I don't think you can legally. It's not like available in a, in, a, in a collection of unpublished no, no, fine, fine. no, really, really disappointingly. I mean, I don't think you can actually buy any of his scripts. I genuinely think Heather's is, is the greatest script ever ever produced. I think his his draft of Hudson Hawk, which is not quite what we see, mm. but great sections of it are. It's just incredible. Um, I think uh, the best bits of Demolition Man, which again he did a draft of. It's not the whole film. Are amazing. Oh, I didn't know he did. He had a hand in that. Okay, yeah, um, that probably so, explains you know, it. You know, I mean, this is the guy who, who conceived the scene in Demolition Man, where it, I mean, the whole plot is started by the LA riot, right? Mm. Remember the LA riots, and that kickstarts the whole plot. And we're now in a future LA where everybody's been sort of PC'd to the point of being completely anodyne. Yeah, it's this bad guy character, Simon Phoenix, comes back. He's a black guy with blue hair and blonde eyes, right? Mm-hmm. And then we've got a scene of him filmed on CCTV beating the hell out of a bunch of coppers by a phone box. And it's like this, this, this Rodney King on its head thing. And just watching audiences sort of like, the sort of 80% of audiences who didn't recognise the reference sail over that and the other 20 go, hang on a minute. And it's very provocative in that way all the way through. And, and then that's, you know, it's riffed on a bit, a bit later. And, and how, how, you know, what would be really troubling to this society? Do you know what I mean? What's the, what's the worst fly in there? Right? Do you know what I mean? And it's Simon Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. They get some sort of lunkhead who blows stuff up, <laughs> who has to go on a journey and learn stuff himself. Right. Mm. Uh, I, I think, um, I think Demolition Man is a, is a, is a Deeply flawed film, but the stuff that's great is absolutely amazing. And I think everything Walters wrote was great. His draft of Batman Returns is really good. Wesley Strick sort of got crappy bits in there that sort of throw it off. But I think um, I think Walters is, is wonderful. And uh, if someone said to me tomorrow, "Here's a uh, hundred million dollars. What are you going to do?" I'd get him to write something for me. Okay. Well, that sounds. I mean, it's interesting. One of the things that you mentioned during that riff from the crypt was the Emperor. The Emperor's New Clothes, because of course that's what I think a lot of the critics of Inception would uh, would say is um, you know 
uh, yeah. reminiscent of. Yeah. So um, that, there's a nice little, you know, dual, uh, dual, dual reference to it there. So um, all close together. It somehow. does exactly. <laughs> but is it all a dream? Who can tell? Um, okay. Who cares? Who cares exactly? Well, spin those totems and uh, do uh, get in touch with us uh, if you have any comments. If you uh, agreed or disagreed with with what we said, um, let us know. Mouth off at heyyouguys.co.uk. Brendan, you are now officially working for Bleeding Cool and doing some sterling work over there. So do check out bleedingcool.com. Um, I am on heyyouguys.co.uk and hopefully Craig Skinner will be back next week um, where we'll be discussing probably a lot of things that came out of Comic-Con, but um, there's also a Toy Story and a Pixar episode in our future as well, because I think uh, with Toy Story 3 doing so well, I think it's interesting to kind of work out um, its effect and uh, and also, you know, just talk our thoughts about there's Pixar. There's a film with some existential questions that are worth discussing. Exactly, exactly. But we will discuss them in a future episode. So thanks very much for listening. We will see you all next week. 